I've been preaching through a series we're calling Tangled, the things that keep you from becoming all that God's called you to be, the things that trip you up, that hold you back. And today is message number six in these deadly sins that attack us as believers. Today is anger. Now, I have scored pretty high on the manly chart this past week. Just want you to know, wrote an article, uh, read an article about a shortage of manliness, that we guys don't know how to do stuff anymore, and we need to start learning how to grill our own steaks and jump our, jumpstart our cars and things like that, you know. Well, I have changed out a battery this week, and I have changed out a water heater this week. Hey, I feel pretty good on that, all right? I'm thinking I can do stuff. I can do stuff. But here's something that takes all the strength that God provides. This is something that would really make a difference. If the men and women in our church would learn how to overcome anger. I don't know that I've preached on anything that I think is more relevant more for today than this particular issue in the life of the believer. Now, I've been in 1 Samuel last week. We looked at Saul in regard to envy, and envy was what just rotted his bones, like the Scripture says. And he dealt with envy his entire reign. He also dealt with anger. So today, we're going to go to 1 Samuel 20 and read a story where anger flares up in different kinds of ways. Now, I must tell you that prior to the Scripture I'm about to read, Saul has sought to kill David twice. He was at the meal... He was eating at the king's table, and Saul hurled his spear at David. And David avoided him and ran out of there. And then Saul sent a team of assassins to kill David in his house. And it was only with the help of Michael, his wife, that he escaped by being let down from a window. So two attempts have been made on David's life by King Saul as we come to this passage, and they are in a religious ce uh, uh, celebration, a, a time of the new moon festival, as we come to verse 27. And David has already missed the first of those uh, two days of feasting. And verse 27 of 1 Samuel 20 says, is that rain, by the way? The uh, text doesn't say that. But it's raining hard enough where I can hear it. Can y'all hear it? All right, I guess we need it, right? Going to make all the plants grow. Verse 27 says, But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. Then Saul said to his son Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal? either yesterday or today. Jonathan answered, 
David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. That's why he's not come to the king's table. There's a new moon celebration going on. The families are getting together. They are offering sacrifices to the Lord. They're offering special prayers to the Lord. Special worship is happening. And David is saying, I'm going to go be with my family in Bethlehem. That's what Jonathan's excuse is for David's absence at the table. Okay, verse 30. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father, but Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. Jonathan got up from the table in fierce anger. On that second day of the feast, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. Many surprising things about this story. I guess Saul expects David to show up at the dinner table since he's still living and he has avoided the assassins. Come on in and have a meal. Sounds a little silly, doesn't it? People who are angry often want to be excused. You don't get a pass with your anger. Don't expect a pass in regard to your anger. Maybe the way you express your anger is you cross your arms. You don't say a word. You have that miffed look on your face. And that's you. Or maybe you're like Saul, violent, and loud and that's how you express your anger well Saul thinks he gets a pass maybe because he's king it's his table maybe he gets a pass because he's thinking this is just part of my nature this is how I am this is who I am and if you really love me you just have to put up with who I am and what I am which is a kind of despair about the anger that boils up inside of him. Maybe he wants a pass because he thinks he's right. He's right. Yes, he's mad. Yes, he's angry. Maybe he's been a little out of line. But he wants a pass because he's right. And he tells Jonathan here, Jonathan, as long as the son of Jesse lives, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. And Saul believes because he is right, he needs to get a pass on his anger. 
There are those in the church who excuse their anger by calling it righteous indignation. And they think that what they're actually doing is being indignant about wrong and about sin. And they excuse their anger by hiding behind the notion that it is righteous indignation. Well, here's your response from Pastor James. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You can put it down, James 1.20, it's in the book. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Is wrath a part of the character of God? Yes, it is. It is, is it the dark part of God? No, it is not. God's wrath is not his dark side. It's not some black strand or dark strand in the character of God. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God's anger is a part of of his love. It's part of his love. It's not the opposite of his love. It's under the umbrella of his love. His wrath happens because he loves us and he hates the things we do that hurt ourselves and hurt others. And I will confess there are times, as with the money changers in the temple when Jesus drove them out, or as with those Pharisees who did not want him to heal that sick woman because it was the Sabbath. He looked around in anger at them. There are times when you express a wrath or an anger that truly is righteous indignation. But the Scripture says, even when it's the right thing, even when it's directed toward a hard heart or evident sin, not just your opinion, not the way you want to have stuff done, not the battle of the wills, not to impose your will. When you are actually objecting to, when there's an anger because you are objecting to a sin that is destroying people, that can be righteous indignation. But listen, do not let the sun set on your wrath. Don't stay mad. God can handle his wrath because he is perfect. And you can't handle wrath day after day as part of who you are because you are imperfect. And your wrath is going to attach itself to impure and unholy motives. Don't expect a pass on your anger, men and women. God wants to address that anger in you. And he wants to bring it under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, don't manipulate people with your anger. Saul is a big man. He's a head taller than anybody else in the kingdom. He's a strong man. When he stands up and when he starts bellowing, he is an intimidating presence to anybody in the room. 
and he exudes that angry energy and it frightens people, scares them, and they don't know what to do. And particularly the women, they are smaller and, and, and physically not nearly the size of Saul and he can intimidate them and overpower them with his anger and his physique and men often do that and they use anger to manipulate other people in their lives. Sometimes women use their anger to manipulate other people in their lives. It's a way of getting our way. We learned it when we were little toddlers and we threw those fits. And if we screamed and hollered enough and kicked our legs and thrashed around, we'd finally get the sucker we wanted. And we never grew out of it. To this day, we still throw a fit when we don't get our way, and it's our way of manipulating people. Now, here's the brokenness about that. The problem is, you're not supposed to be manipulating people, for heaven's sake. You're to love people, love your neighbors yourself, love people and use things. We get it too often the opposite. We use people and love things. Loving people using things. That's the standard way to relate in the world. The Bible teaches that God comes first in your life, amen? You come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. I did a wedding here this week, and when we did the ring exchange, I asked a couple to say, in the name of Jesus my Lord, I make my promise. Usually we use a Trinitarian formula there, and I often have myself. And that's great, it's fine, and it's traditional. But years ago, somebody asked me if they could do the ring exchange in the name of Jesus. And I said, sure. Well, after the ceremony, someone come up to me and they said, that was beautiful. I love that you did the rings in the name of Jesus, making their promise. And I said, well, it brings every covenant under the lordship of Christ. And we want our temper, our demeanor, our attitude to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You make your promise to your spouse under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You raise your children under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You run your business under the lordship of Jesus Christ. If it cannot be honorable, if it can't bring God glory, you need to find another line of work, right? Because you need to do your work as unto the Lord, the scripture says, and not unto man. So all things come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, including how I deal with people. And I am not to manipulate people with my anger. I am to love them. And if I discover that I am manipulating my spouse or my children with my anger. I need to confess that to God and forsake it. There's something that doesn't look good on you since you gave your life to Jesus. There are things that look good on you that you ought to wear every day. You ought to put on kindness, gentleness, meekness, and love. These things are supposed to be put on. You ought to put on patience generosity these things look good on you and there's some things that you're to take off that you're to put off now that Jesus is Lord and you're living life under his lordship and Paul says put off all anger put it off 
It doesn't fit you anymore now that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't look good on you. It contradicts the covenant you've made with Jesus. And you need to lay it aside. And if you do not, it will trip you up. It will tangle you up and it will keep you from being the mom or dad and Christian leader that God intends for you to be. Lay aside all anger. Don't manipulate people with it. Don't keep it in your toolbox. If sin happens and you experience righteous indignation, you can express that. It is consistent with the love and character of God, but then you need to go on without it. Do not lose your temper. Paul, Saul loses his temper here. I mean, it is a classic case where the man who loves his son Jonathan, sitting at the table with him, now hurls a spear at Jonathan. Think of this man, Saul. He's in the middle of a religious celebration. He's expressing his religious duties. He has brought sacrifices to his God. He has offered prayers to his God. He's been doing this now for two days. They've had feasts around the table because of this religious observance, this spiritual exercise that they are engaged in. In the middle of this spiritual exercise, he loses his temper, he flares up in anger, and he throws a spear at his own son at their dinner table. How can this be? How can this inconsistency occur? Can you imagine this happening? And the truth of the matter is, yes, we can imagine it happening because it happens sometimes to us. Even in the midst of trying to be spiritual and doing what God's called us to be, we get angry. Sometimes we lose our temper. And when we do, we hurl things. Sometimes they're words, sometimes they're plates, sometimes they're flower pots. Saul hurls his spear. And every time we lose our temper, there is a victim out there to whom we have hurled the words. We are throwing these words at them. We are hurling this spear at them. And we are victimizing somebody that we're supposed to love. Sometimes I want to ask people, fundamentally, what are you angry about? I mean, fundamentally, all the way down deep inside. Because when you lose your temper and you hurl something at an innocent party, you're doing that because something inside of you is rotten. And it's like a bubble coming up from the rotten mass in the bottom of the pond. And it breaks on the surface. And it has a foul smell to it. And there's something down deep inside that has caused you to be angry. And it has caused you to turn your heart this way. And it has brought these awful words, these hurtful words, maybe these vulgar and profane words to the surface of your life. They are not just independent. They are not accidental. They come from somewhere. What are you angry about? 
What are you angry about? Fundamentally, are you angry at parents? Or at life itself? Or maybe at God? For your lot in life? For how he made you? For what you look like? For the circumstances that are yours? Or the challenges that have come your way? Are you living with a sense of injustice that you've been done wrong? Why are you angry? Something down deep inside is broken. And that's where the loss of temper comes from. Now, Saul doesn't want to kill Jonathan. He wants Jonathan to be on the throne. But he hurts or he tries to hurt Jonathan, and he does indeed hurt him with his words and his actions. And that's what happens with anger. We think we can contain our anger, that we are anger, angry at so-and-so or such-and-such, and that we can keep that anger sealed off inside of us and just direct it toward one individual or one situation. But the truth of the matter is that we are just like Saul, who is fiercely angry at David, and we communicate, we spread that anger. We can't keep it contained. It starts going into our life. It starts jumping to other people and other situations, and all of a sudden, we're not just angry at so-and-so. We are an angry individual. Anger is our disposition. It's our character, quality, and how we're walking in the world. We're just flat angry. And we can't contain it. It's too powerful. It's an emotion that invades all sectors of your life. It travels down the relationships of your life, the ideas of your life, the structures and systems of your life. You can't seal it off. And you end up at the dinner table throwing a spear at somebody you really love and you realize in the middle of it you're not really mad at them. Your anger is someplace else, but now you're taking it out on the people you love. Don't lose your temper. Saul's anger flared up, resulting in this terrible breach with his son. Don't spread this disease this attitude. Saul gets angry, and he gets angry a lot. He's an angry dad. Before he gets up from this dinner table, his son Jonathan is fierce with anger toward his dad. See, your children will cow for a while under your fierce anger. You can manipulate them and overcome them with your physique and your demeanor. You can control them with that anger. But there comes a day when they grow up and they're sitting at the table with you and they will no longer give in to the punishing rage that you let go. And it will be a battle of the wills and the anger that you have used to manipulate the people around you will now be resting in them and you will be the recipient of their rage as well here we have the story of an angry dad who now has an angry son 
there is a better way to live. There is a better road than this. No excuses made, set them aside. No pass for anybody in the room. If you have adopted an angry disposition as a way of life, I challenge you, this is sin, and you need to forsake it and set it aside. If you have decided in despair that you cannot handle this anger and it's just part of who you are, it is time to bring it under the lordship of Jesus Christ and say, even though this rage has been evidenced in me for a long time, I believe that Jesus Christ, my Lord, is able to overcome it. And I can live a different way. Don't spread your anger. Don't manipulate people. Don't lose your temper. Don't expect a pass. Your anger has a cure. Saul never found it. Jonathan managed to be a man of kindness, compassion, and integrity, despite the anger unleashed upon him by his dad. The proverb says, a soft anger, a soft answer turns away strife. A soft answer turns away anger. When I first read that years ago, I thought about somebody being angry toward me and expressing their anger in a volatile way. And instead of matching their volatility with my own, which is how we want to do it, the hair stands up in the back of your neck. You know how that feeling is. And you just rise up inside and you want to lash back at the same level with the same kind of demeanor that they have attacked you. If you instead, in that moment, will give a soft answer, the man who is angry will calm down. And I think that's true. And you might want to try it in your classroom or at your workplace to be the person who maintains a calm and even disposition, even in the midst of volatility and anger, and see what happens to the people around you. But I read that proverb in another way as I prepared for this message. A soft answer turns away wrath. And I read it this way. If I will bite my tongue, calm my own heart, ask God to give me wisdom and strength, and instead of answering in kind, deliver a soft answer in the midst of this angry moment, God will calm the anger in my own heart. My soft answer will turn away wrath in me. The virtues of patience, self-control, temperance, kindness, humility. These virtues God is cultivating in your life. So in the moment of your temptation to lash back in kind at someone who is angry toward you, you will have the strength to give a soft answer that will calm not only the person who is speaking to you, but your own heart as well. Human anger 
does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Set aside all anger. Let it go. Let God work this change in you so that you will be more like the Savior who, although sometimes he got angry, lived a life of such dramatic love and kindness that it was his reputation in the world. And God will use the love that flows out of you to let the family and other angry people in your life, let them see the true work of following the Lord Jesus happening in you. The transformation that the Holy Spirit intends to work in you in this area of anger may be the greatest witness you will bear to the people who know you best. Maybe it's been years since you even tried to address it. Or maybe the Holy Spirit is for the first time pointing this out as a, as a problem that is surfacing in your life. I challenge you, don't let it trip you up. Confess it, forsake it, and submit that anger to the Lordship of Christ. Bow with me, please. Every week, the response has been very personal in this series of seven deadly sins. And we've been challenged by the Holy Spirit to look at our own lives. And so, Holy Spirit, we are listening today. Father God, we pray for your light to shine upon our hearts. God, if we have been manipulating people with our anger, if we are losing our temper, if we have spread that anger around, if we're trying to make excuses for the way that we are, God, I pray today your Holy Spirit will begin a work of cleansing and transformation. Lord, that you will forgive, that you will cleanse, and that you will make us conform to your image more like you. God, we lift this up to you. We thank you that you are able to handle this problem in our lives. Untangle us, Lord. Set us free from the bondage of anger that we may serve you more fully and live more joyfully and love more completely those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.